Hello and welcome to the Banker podcast series, Banking in Transition, where we explore how banking has changed through the COVID-19 pandemic and is adapting for the future. In this series, the Banker's editors are interviewing industry experts from around the world to gather insights and advice on specific challenges, best practices and innovations that can help banks and their customers as we move towards a new normal in banking. I'm Kimberly Long, Asia Editor of the Banker, and today I'm speaking with Mark Kruger, Opinion Editor at ITSI Global, Senior Fellow at the ITSI Research Institute, Senior Fellow at the Centre of International Governance Innovation, and Senior Fellow at the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Thank you for joining me today, Mark. It's my pleasure, Kimberly. So to start with, China has shown a dramatic recovery from the impact of coronavirus. What has helped it to achieve this recovery? Well, Kimberly, China has been much more successful at controlling the spread of the virus than most other countries. So far this year, there have been over 8 million new infections in the U.S. and close to 6 million in the EU. But there have only been 5,000 new cases in China. China's strategy has been to act quickly and aggressively in areas where outbreaks occur, but to allow normal economic activity to continue in unaffected areas. For example, Shijiazhuang, a city of 11 million people and the capital of Hebei province has been one of China's hotspots. The city recorded about 900 infections this year. That's close to a fifth of China's total. In Shijiazhuang, the government uh, implemented a citywide lockdown tested millions of residents and built an isolation center capable of housing 4,000 people. But elsewhere, it was business as usual. In contrast to what we see in many other countries, in China, everyone is pulling together to make sure the virus remains contained. The government has a plan, which it backs with significant resources, and the people put up with inconveniences which which they understand are necessary to protect public health. For example, every day, my wife, Feifei, and I download our health QR codes. These codes are either red, yellow, or green, depending on whether or not we have traveled to high, medium, or low-risk places. These scannable matrix barcodes contain our official IDs, our travel histories, which it collects from our purchase of rail and airline tickets, and our cell phone usage. Security at public places like shopping malls can ask to see our codes before admitting us. And every day, we have to send these codes into our girls' schools along with our temperatures. Our codes are currently green, but if they turned yellow or red, we would have to isolate ourselves for 7 or 14 days and report our conditions to the public health authorities. Perhaps more importantly, in China and in other Asian countries, people wore masks from the outset of the pandemic. I think this was an important factor in containing the virus at an early stage. In the West, it took the public health authorities some time to understand the benefits of mask wearing for controlling the spread of infection. And in some countries, there is still a cultural culture war angle to what should be basic public health. 
But in Asian countries, perhaps because of the higher population densities, or perhaps because of a history with pandemics, wearing masks is second nature. And even now, though the infection rate in China is quite low, only a couple of dozen new cases per day in the entire country, we all wear masks in public buildings and on public transportation. So from what we've seen so far, is this an even recovery? And have there been any concerns raised about the apparent rate of recovery? Well, Kimberly, I think it's important to realize that China really has had a V-shaped recovery. Last year, the Chinese economy grew by 2.3% in real terms, which is well below the economy's 6% trend. But I think that focusing on the annual number misses important quarterly dynamics. The economy experienced a very sharp decline in the first quarter. It rebounded rapidly in the latter part of the year. Indeed, by year end, the level of GDP essentially returned to where experts predicted it would have been before the pandemic broke out. In contrast, the level of US GDP in the fourth quarter was about 4% below its pre-pandemic trend. That's two years of lost growth. Now, the economic situation, both in China and abroad, is very different from what you might have imagined before the pandemic. So it's not surprising that the composition of Chinese demand has also evolved. The key economic effect of the pandemic has been to reduce person-to-person -person contact. So around the world, we have seen a sharp decline in the consumption of services, dining out, entertainment, travel, etc. China is no exception. For example, our girls were off for winter break in January, and we took a short trip to Sanya, which is China's most southerly point, and which sits on the coast of a tropical island. Normally, this is a very popular destination during school vacation. But this year, because of concerns over COVID, the beaches were empty and we got deep discounts on the flight and the hotel. So the service segment of, the Ch of Chinese consumption is still very depressed. And while household incomes have rebounded, savings remain higher than normal as consumers remain cautious. Now, one might have thought that the sharp decline in China's trading partners' economies would have been negative for Chinese exports. But it turns out that the Chinese exports were quite strong in the latter part of the year. Outside of China, the pandemic has also altered the pattern of consumption such that people are spending less on services and more on durable goods. But not every economy has its supply chains up and running and can meet the demand for durables. China appears to be unique in this regard. By year end, its merchandise exports were up sharply, while those of the rest of the world were still below their pre-pandemic level. China's investment spending has remained very robust, even as the economy has fully recovered. The composition of investment has begun to show encouraging signs of confidence among entrepreneurs. Investment by private firms accelerated in Q4. This suggests that the conditions are in place 
for the government to scale back policy support, which was important in supporting the economy in the first half of 2020. Looking from the perspective of the fourth quarter of last year, we see a Chinese economy that is back at control. Consumption is somewhat weaker, and exports and investment are somewhat stronger than in 2019. And these are best seen as pandemic-related changes in the composition of the economy. Economic momentum seemed to be very strong in November and December, and I expect that we could see growth as high as 10% this year. So coincide with this, China has seen a rise in debt levels in recent years from the household through to the government level. How much of a concern should this be? The rapid rise in China's debt to GDP level has raised a lot of red flags. I guess it's fair to say that most economists see it as the biggest risk to China's plan to achieve moderately developed country status in the next 15 years. Now, China's indebtedness has undergone three distinct phases since the outbreak of the global financial crisis. During the first phase, between December 2007 and December 2015, China's debt-to-GDP ratio rose by more than 80% of GDP. About two-thirds of this debt was accumulated by non-financial corporations. Initially, most of these liabilities were incurred as part of the government's 4 trillion renminbi spending plan, which was designed to counter the depressive effects of the financial crisis. Towards the end of this period, China's shadow banking system grew in importance and a wider variety of firms were able to access credit. The second phase began towards the end of 2015. At this time, concern about the rise in leverage and the opacity of the shadow banking system exposures led the authorities to pursue a policy of deleveraging. By 2017, addressing financial risks became a key policy priority, one of the so-called three tough battles, along with alleviating poverty and tackling pollution. During this second phase, which lasted to the end of 2019, the debt of non-financial corporations was essentially unchanged as a percent of GDP. Households accounted for most of the increase in China's indebtedness during this period. Most of this was in the form of new mortgages. The outbreak of the pandemic ushered in the third phase of indebtedness. Between December 2019 and December 2020, China's debt rose by close to 24% of GDP as the country fought to maintain employment and output in the face of the pandemic shock. The rise in indebtedness last year was significantly larger than over the previous four years, and it accounts for close to a fifth of all the increase since 2007. So here we are, with credit to the non-financial sector in China equal to 280% of GDP. How does China's indebtedness compare to that of other major countries? Well, according to the BIS's most recent data, China ranks as the sixth most indebted G20 country, 
It is right between the U.S. and Italy. While China's indebtedness is not off the charts with respect to its G20 peers, it is high for a middle-income country. Does that mean that China is too poor to be this levered? Not necessarily. Compared to the other middle-income G20 countries, China has a, more, a larger and more diversified industrial base, which makes it more resilient to shocks. Moreover, many of those other middle-income countries suffer from so-called original sin. Because of a history of unsustainable borrowing and high inflation, they find it difficult to borrow in their own currency. In contrast, almost all of China's debt is denominated in renminbi, and it is largely held domestically. These factors are positive for China's debt sustainability. Another way to think through debt sustainability is to look at the type of activity being financed. For most G20 countries, indebtedness increased both in the aftermath of the global financial crisis and following the pandemic. These debts were incurred to finance uh, transfer payments to the most vulnerable. However, in China's case, debt was accumulated to finance a, a substantial increase in the capital stock. Now, for debt to be sustainable, it is not sufficient that capital goods be financed. The investment has to be productive enough to service the debt. In a country as big as China, one will certainly be able to find white elephant projects. Indeed, we have observed pockets of overcapacity in certain industries. However, these are examples of microeconomic imbalances. The macroeconomic data tell a very different story. When we look at the marginal product of capital, that little bit of extra GDP you get from that last bit of investment, we find that Chinese investment continues to be quite productive. Ensuring that investment remains productive is one important way to increase the sustainability of China's debt. But other policies can also be helpful here. China's non-financial corporation should be encouraged to finance themselves without incurring debt. For example, through the equity market. China's households are becoming more levered because of the high cost of housing and incentives to own rather than to rent. So it is reassuring that policymakers are calling for promoting the construction of affordable rental properties and improving long-term rental policies. All of the increase in government indebtedness since 2007 was incurred at the local level. This is because local governments often lack the power to raise taxes and sustainably fund their expenditures. A recurrent tax on residential property would not only boost local government revenues and reduce their borrowing needs, it would also dampen the speculative demand for apartments and improve housing affordability. And with all this in mind, how has the Chinese banking system weathered the pandemic? Well, the Chinese banking system entered the pandemic not only as the biggest in the world, but also as one of the world's most profitable. The system's profitability arises to a great extent from the huge loans the banks make. This significantly reduces their per unit overhead costs. A considerable share of the bank's loans 
is to large state-owned enterprises and local government financing vehicles. These exposures have hidden guarantees which mitigate risk, lower management costs, and inflate profits. In part because of their profitability, the banks were asked to support the recovery by exercising forbearance and by keeping financing costs low. The government was seeking to avoid a cascade of negative events that could be precipitated by calling loans in the face of overall economic weakness. As a consequence, it was prepared to accept lower bank profits and reduce capital buffers. Indeed, the banks were asked to transfer up to 1.5 trillion renminbi in profits to the real economy last year. This is no mean feat when 2019 profits were about 2 trillion renminbi. As it turned out, system-wide profits last year did not fall by 75%. In the event, they only declined by 3%. Net interest margins only narrowed slightly and asset growth was robust. Last year, banks' return on assets was 0.77%, and their return on equity was 9.5%. Most global banks would find this sort of performance enviable in an average year, let alone one as trying as 2020. However, this robust outcome masks two risks. The first, is that banks are still practicing forbearance and have not fully recognized all of their non-performing loans. This could put future profits under pressure. The second is that while banks look good in aggregate, there are a lot of smaller institutions, especially in rural areas, that may not be too healthy. Indeed, rural commercial banks are less profitable more poorly capitalized and have a much higher non-performing loan ratio than the large state-owned institutions. While the rural commercial banks are not a large share of the overall bank assets, they are connected to other financial institutions through the interbank market. So keeping them healthy will be important for maintaining financial stability. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. My pleasure, Kimberly. And you can keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify and Acast and follow our discussions at thebanker.com slash podcasts.